Well, hello, everyone. Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you all and, and to gather with you to worship and to gather around God's Word. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, please turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. Matthew, chapter 12, as we continue in our series through the Gospel of Matthew, and particularly in this section on standing up. You know, I was in Washington, D.C. this week, and as I was making my way out there, uh, I read a, a story that caught my attention in a book I was reading, uh, and I was thinking about this message, and I was thinking about you, and I thought it was highly appropriate. It, it concerned a key moment, a decisive moment in the life of George Washington, long before he was President Washington, long before there was a Washington Monument and a Washington, D.C. as the capital of this great nation, there was a young unknown soldier called George Washington in the French-Indian War. A British soldier, might I add, at that time, just by the way. And in the Battle of Monongahela, pretty tough to pronounce, I think that's pretty accurate, but Washington was there, and he was only one of 30 soldiers to survive of 1,400 soldiers who took the battlefield that day. One in 30. He was the only horseback officer to survive, and he had two horses shot from underneath him. When he got back to base camp, he discovered that there were four bullet holes in his jacket. The book I was reading, the author goes on to relate the accounts of some Native American Indian leaders who fought in that battle against Washington, and one of them said that he was perplexed at how Washington could survive because he targeted Washington, and he ordered all of his troops, his warriors, to shoot directly at the only man still on a horse, and all of them were great marksmen. Another Native American Indian chief, a guy called Chief Red Hawk. I love that name. I'm trying to see if it catches at home. Chief Red Hawk Murphy. I, I'll settle for just chief, chief. But anyway, Chief Red Hawk uh, claimed to have personally shot directly at George Washington 11 times. And every time it was as though he was bulletproof as though some hand was pr protecting him. It seems there would be no George Washington in the memory of this nation, in the institutions of this nation, were it not for the decisive intervention of the hand of God in that decisive moment in his life. God's hand protected him. God's hand uh, looked after him on that battlefield. George Washington himself knew this. Decades later, as he's been inaugurated as the first president of this country. He takes his oath of office, and he bends down, and he doesn't kiss your constitution, albeit a great document, and he doesn't kiss your declaration of independence. He bends down, and he picks up the Word of God, and he kisses the Word of God. He honors God because he believed God's hand was at work in his life. Now, why do I tell you that? Why, why do I bring that up? Because I believe, as I'm sitting in that airport reading this story, I believe that that same hand that, that led and intervened in George Washington's life is the same hand that brought you here this morning. It's the same hand that controls all things. 
He decided to bring you here to this moment. This is a decisive moment in your life, an opportunity that you get every week if you submit to his lead. Now, I know that on one level you think you're here because it's Sunday and that's what you do. Or because your wife or your husband or mom and dad pestered you long enough to drag you out of bed and bring you here. Some of you might be here because you feel guilty because last week you missed church. In light of recent events, some of you might even be here as an activist. I don't know. But I do know that from God's perspective, he has you here. God wants you here. This is a decisive moment in your life and He has you here essentially to hear him, not to literally kiss the word of God, but to submit to it, to submit to what he has to say. And and so that's what we're doing here in Matthew chapter 12 is a wonderful chapter. It it really presents a whole series of incidents that that are grouped together because of their common theme, and their common theme is opposition to Jesus. Opposition to Jesus, standing against Jesus. It's, it's a common response back then. It's a common response now. It's a dangerous response. We're not going to get into the section where Jesus tells us how dangerous it is. That's closer to the end after our passage this morning where he presents a warning of how dangerous it is to reject Jesus. But in the midst of all of that opposition, there's a little section where Jesus climaxes with an invitation. An invitation to anybody who would care to take him up on it. So let me show you that. Uh, Turn to verse 22. Our our section kicks off there. And what I want you to see is, is that this little section in the middle of this chapter on opposition begins with a restoration miracle. A restoration miracle. It's not just any miracle. It's a restoration miracle. It's, it's one that, that speaks of the renewal that Jesus can bring about in humanity. Look at verse 22 with me. Then, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that's to Jesus, and he healed him. So that the man now spoke and he saw It's a remarkable miracle, and and Matthew actually doesn't spend too much time on it. In fact, he gives us that little verse, and then he moves on, because Matthew's more interested in the responses against Jesus that this miracle triggered in the lives of those who observed it. So he wants to move on. I want to pause over it a little longer, because I want you to see what's there. It's quite remarkable. First thing that we see is the condition of this man. This man is trapped in a dark, dark world. Imagine that for a second. I mean, let your imagination go there. Close your eyes if need be. Imagine you could never see, and it's dark in there, and you can't speak out because you're mute. You can't talk. You're trapped, frustrated, frightened, vulnerable, helpless. Now imagine you're also brutally aware that there's someone else in there with you. This man is demon-possessed, whispering, murmuring, frightening. You can't call out and you can't look out. You're trapped. You're in a horrible condition. It's torture. This man is in the condition that he's in because he's demonically controlled. He's, He's possessed by a demon. 
evil resides within his life and has a lot of power. I, I don't look at him alone with pity. I look at him with pity, but the Scriptures make it very, very clear that he represents me, spiritually speaking. I pity him and I pity me. We're all born into darkness. We're all born unable to call out the Scriptures teach, vulnerable, helpless, frightened, demonically controlled. Evil resides in our planet. Evil resides in the human heart. Don't pity just this man. Pity yourself. That's the condition you're born into before the Lord Jesus Christ intervenes. Now, I don't need to remind you and prove to you how, how rampant this is in society today, in, in subtle ways, in, in flagrant ways. In your own home, you see evil and, and the ways of the world manifested itself perhaps in, in petty squabbling and selfishness. But the 19 kids and the two adult teachers in Uvalde, Texas recently reminded us once again that evil resides on planet earth. That was satanic. There's nothing else that, that, that can explain it. It was evil having its violent way, just like this man is possessed by evil, and it's causing blindness, and it's causing an inability to do anything about it. It didn't manifest itself in violence with him. It manifested itself with violence not too many weeks ago here. I recently was reading about a, a, a story at one of the Dallas Mavericks games back in April, I think it was. A dad took his 15-year-old daughter to watch a game, and she heads off to the restroom, and she never comes back. And the dad, as you can imagine, begins to get confused and concerned and worried. Where's my 15-year-old daughter gone? I have a 15-year-old daughter at home. I can't imagine what this guy was going through. They found her 10 days later, in a motel room in Oklahoma City because of the intervention of a charity that works to rescue uh, kidnapped women from the sex trade. A profile had been put up online advertising her services by the kidnappers. That's just evil. Evil resides in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our streets. This man's story is just another version of our story. His condition is our condition, in darkness, trapped, unable to do anything about it, unless Jesus intervenes. And Jesus intervenes. That's the second thing right here. Uh, it declares Jesus' identity and his ability. That's what these miracle, this miracle proclaims. This man is brought to the only one who can do anything about this situation. And Jesus heals him. You know, there's a reason that Jesus performs the types of miracles, the very specific types of miracles that he performs in the Gospels. You don't see Jesus walking around handing out penicillin pills. You don't see Jesus walking around with smallpox vaccinations and, uh, and giving lectures on, on microscopic germs for hygiene and how to, how to drink clean water and how, how to invent electricity and, and, and cars and refrigeration. All of those would have been extremely helpful to humanity. 
Jesus is not concerned about your comfort in darkness. Jesus is concerned about declaring his ability and his identity. And those specific miracles, the blind seeing, the lame walking, the, 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 the dumb, those unable to speak, speaking, the captives being set free, referring in Isaiah to those who are under demonic oppression, being released from resident evil within their lives. Those specific miracles point to Jesus as the Messiah, as the one who God said would one day come. You'd see it in what he declares and what he does, and he would have the ability to restore humanity back to life as it was always meant to be all along, to renew humanity, to God's purposes for humanity from the very beginning. That's why this is a restoration miracle. Jesus is proving that he can liberate us from our darkness and from our blindness and from our inability to call out to him. So this restoration miracle is essentially proof. It's proof of Jesus' identity and Jesus' ability. It's proof in light of what God said he would do in the Old Testament. It declares that what evil does to us, Jesus can undo for us, that only Jesus can dislodge the the demonic residence of Satan within humanity, so that humanity can be able to see, not be blind, and so that humanity could be able to speak and call out to God, not be mute. So that's what this miracle is about. Matthew moves on quite quickly. I I needed to pause there for a little second to set up what comes next, which is the response to Jesus in light of what they saw. Those people around Jesus saw what he did, and they spoke up in light of what he did. So let's look at those responses. Look at verse 23 and 24. And all the people were amazed, and they said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, at first glance, it seems that you have two types of people here, those who are for Jesus and those who are against Jesus, right? Those who are amazed at Jesus and those who are going to antagonize Jesus. But that's not the case. This amazing act that Jesus has just performed before them leads to an attack on Jesus from both those sides. The crowd that's caught up in in wonder uh, and amazement aren't there to worship him, aren't there to adore him. They're rejecting him. It's a soft rejection. It's a mild rejection, but it is a rejection nonetheless. In fact, that little question, uh, can this be the son of David? Can this be the Messiah? Expects a negative answer. It expects the answer to be, surely not. It can't be. This can't be the son of David. It's a statement of, of, of disbelief. It's a statement of doubt, actually. We had a, quite a laugh at our home two nights ago. I was putting, I've, my youngest two share a room, and so we were doing a little Bible devotional with them, and it's just a devotional where, you know, every day you're told what to read. And so we're sitting there, and what you need to understand is my, my youngest is called, as you well know, James Jonathan Murphy. His middle name's my name. The one above him is called Jake Josiah Murphy, but neither of them 
ever go by Jonathan or Josiah. The names nearly surprise them when they hear it. And so we're sitting there, and the little devotional was on the Messiah. And who's the Messiah? And what, is it, what does the word Messiah mean? And it was, <laughs> the more we talked about the Messiah being the special one, the coming one, the more perplexed my youngest got, because in his little head, he was thinking that his brother was not called Jake Josiah Murphy, but Jake Messiah Murphy. <laughs> and he was amazed. But he was also caught in disbelief. Surely not. Surely it can't be him. Am I bunking with the Messiah? Something's messed up in this devotional, Dad. You can't be amazed and doubt. You can't be amazed and yet still end up on the wrong side of Jesus in disbelief. And that's what's happening here. They want a certain type of Messiah. They want a certain type of Savior. Give us a battle-hardened, firm leader. Someone like Alexander the Great or someone like King David so that he can make Israel great again, right? That's what they're looking for. Not this unschooled, self-professed, country bumpkin carpenter who's a part-time preacher, it seems, as well. You're not going to lead us to greatness. Surely, he cannot be the son of David. Surely not. That's the first lot. The second lot aren't surely not, so they're definitely nots. He definitely is not who he claims to be. They don't believe he's a messianic king. They believe he's a satanic servant. That's who they think he is. They, they, they reason away what they saw. It, it can't be attributed to this. It must be attributed to that because we have decided that he cannot be our savior. So they reason it away. In fact, it's quite interesting. The, the word Beelzebul, which literally means Lord of the Flies or Lord of Dung, was a name that a good Jew had come up with in order to insult Satan, right? Satan, oh, he's just the Lord of dung. But the reason they did that is because the word sounds like an ancient Canaanite pagan god, Baal-zebub. So Baal-zebub, by the first century, becomes Baal-zebul because it sounds like Lord of dung. And so that's Satan. And so you're operating in league with Satan. It's, it's as good an insult as a pastor can fling at Jesus, I guess, back in the first century. You're Baalzebub. They've already decided against Jesus, and there's no changing their minds. It's, it's, like, the, it's like the college student who, who didn't want to study, and so he decided to flip, flip a coin. Heads, I go to the movies. Tails, I sit and watch the television. And if it lands on its side, I will study. He's his mind made up, and he's rigged the system to make him feel good about the decision he's already made that he's not going to study. They have their minds made up concerning Jesus. He's operating in league with Satan. So their response as a group, both the soft response and the hard response, is essentially rejection. It's opposition. It's rejection. Soft admiration filled with doubt. Hardline antagonism filled with dismissal and attack. But they're both rejection. One's just a stronger dosage of rejection than the other. 
Both don't believe Jesus. Despite the miracle of restoration that he's presented before them, that proves not only what he can do, but what he will do for them who are living in darkness, who are blind in sin. So an act that leads to an attack on Jesus, and then it leads to an answer by Jesus. Look at Jesus' reply in verses 25 to 29. Jesus replies to their objections. He, he, He provides them with four arguments, I think, there, and I've listed them there in the sermon notes for you to for you to see and follow along. The first one really is an argument from, from a general principle. I call it the, the don't be stupid, stupid argument. Now, I know Jesus might not like me labeling it that, and it's my label, it's not his. I don't think he'll be too mad at me, but I think that he'd agree. It's the don't be stupid, stupid argument. Look at verses 25 and 26. Knowing their thoughts, he, that is Jesus, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Come on, guys. That's what he's basically saying. Your your, your argument is absolutely illogical. Don't talk nonsense. Satan is no dummy. He's not going to work against himself to accomplish his purposes. He's cleverer than that. An entity working against itself fails. If I'm an envoy of Satan, why would I be undoing my satanic work, removing this demon out of this man in whom he resides? Hence, General principle, don't be stupid, stupid. It doesn't make sense. There's a second argument there in verse 27. It's an argument from their own example. It's, it's an argument that says, essentially, don't be so inconsistent. I label it the wishy-washy, have your cake and eat it, too argument. It's, it's flimsy. Look at verse 27. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore you be the judges. See, what Jesus is saying is true. Their representatives exercise demons too. Well, their own example, their own experience is testifying, according to their illogical thought, that therefore they're also agents of Beelzebul. They're they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. It doesn't make sense. It's a ridiculous argument. In fact, it's it's essentially another way of saying, don't be hypocritical. You can't claim that what I do, which is like what you do, is from Satan, but what you do is not from Satan. It doesn't make sense. The third argument that he provides for them there in verse 28 is what I've labeled the logical alternative in your sermon notes. It's essentially a, come on, believe the, the real explanation argument. Think, think the better option. This was a good thing that just occurred. Look at verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The word there literally is the kingdom of God is among you. What Jesus is saying is that there's a better explanation than, than the one you've got to what just happened. And that better explanation is that 
the Spirit of God through me is displaying in your presence kingdom of God type life. And kingdom of God type life, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the mute can speak, the demon possessed are released from their possession. That's kingdom of God type living that's been presented before you. That's the most reasonable and rational and likely option to what you've just witnessed in this restoration miracle. But they refuse to believe. He's given them a tester of what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like, and they just don't want it. They have a better explanation than Jesus' explanation. Argument number four there in verse 29, Jesus essentially says, uh, he gives them an analogy. It's an explanatory analogy. It's an analogy that actually explains what has just happened, what he has just done. It's, it's the be sensible, open your eyes uh, argument. Verse 29, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then he indeed, then indeed he may plunder his house. What, what Jesus is saying there essentially is this, the, the devil is the strong man. And that strong man, the devil, is inhabiting, is residing this house that we call life on planet earth. And he resides there by right. A right that you gave him, that I gave him. When we ejected God and rejected God's way back in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden through our four parents, Adam and Eve, we said to God, no way, God, we don't want it your way, and, and thought that there was a fence that we could sit on in some sort of neutral zone, but there's not. In doing what we did, we handed the keys to the kingdom of God essentially over to his antagonist, the evil one, Satan. And so Satan resides within humanity by right, a right that we gave him. And Jesus is saying here, I have come to bind Satan in his residence so that I can plunder what is currently his, but ultimately isn't his. This man, Hugh Murphy, Chief Murphy. Jesus is saying, I bind him so that I can release you. That's, that's the sensible explanation to what is occurring here. Defeat Satan, and you can release his captives. You can plunder the devil. Jesus is plundering the devil. So Jesus' entire reply to, to, to their response of rejection is essentially this. Your rejection is ridiculous. Your rejection is absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely absurd. Don't be stupid, stupid. Don't be wishy-washy inconsistent. Come on, believe the real explanation. That's the sensible approach. Open your eyes, is what Jesus is saying from verses 25 all the way through to 29. Your rejection is ridiculous. So we've had a miraculous act uh, on G by Jesus. It's led to an attack on Jesus, and he's responded to it with an answer right back 
Adam, but he, he ends in verse 30 with a, with a statement of action, a decisive action that he calls upon anybody who's observing what has occurred here. It's Jesus' request of them. It's Jesus' request of us today, and it's this. In verse 30, let me read it to you. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever is not with me is against me. That's Jesus' request. It's quite simple. Stand with me. Stand with me. Align your life with Jesus not against Jesus. Jesus, listen, Jesus sees humanity very, very simply, those who are with him and those who are against him. What's this? It's as black and white as that. There's no neutral spot. There's no sitting in some sort of no man's land in between. If you're not with Jesus, Jesus says you're against him. So what does with Jesus mean? That's the big issue, right? What does it mean to stand with Jesus. Well, I know that there are many, perhaps most of you here this morning, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, that at some point in your life, you've come before the Lord Jesus Christ and said, you are the Christ, and I need your forgiveness so that I can enter into that kingdom of God that you declare that's coming. You've made that decision, and I applaud you for it. You're standing with Jesus because there was a decisive moment in your past where you had a come-to-Jesus experience, and it was genuine, and it was true, but it wasn't a one-off encounter to be resumed once we get into the kingdom of God, whenever that is. It was to be a 24-7, a, a daily standing with Jesus as your faith in Jesus manifests itself actively in your day-to-day -day life. That you stand with Jesus at home and that you stand with Jesus at work and that you stand with Jesus at, at, at school or, or wherever sphere of life you spend a lot of time in. Does anyone other than your family know that you're with Jesus? Would anybody around you ever accuse you of being one who makes a stand for Jesus? I'm convicted by this. Uh, I, we're going on a road trip this, this week. And, you know, when you go on a road trip, rule number one, check the car. Make sure it works, right? Right amount of oil, tires, etc. And we're driving my wife's car, so I needed to, I'm taking it in to get some attention, not because it's my wife's car, I'm not making any statement on her driving, but her wheels tend to get misaligned a little more than my wheels in my car. <laughs> and so I have to take the car in so that they will realign misaligned wheels. It's very important, not just for fuel efficiency on long road trips. And as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking, boy, that's so true to my life. I so easily get misaligned by the bumpiness of the road of life with Jesus. Christians drift. Christians get distracted. Christians become devoted to things that they shouldn't be so devoted to at the expense of the devotion that they should be placing on Jesus. I know it well. I do it too. I need to dial up 
my standing with Jesus and dial down my standing with all the other stuff that I like and love, like rugby. My, listen, you've got to understand, I'm from Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland is a part of the United Kingdom. The Northern Ireland is, another word for Northern Ireland is Ulster. Those of us in Northern Ireland are what we call Ulster Scots. You know it in this part of the world as Scotch-Irish, right? We're sort of half Scottish. We're all sort of originally Scottish, but we're Ulster Scots. Well, Ulster Rugby was playing in the semi-final of one of these massive tournaments in Europe just yesterday morning. You've got to understand, we've won nothing in 16 years. And so I'm sitting in my living room with my little boys watching me stand up for Ulster. And that's the motto, actually, stand up for Ulster. And I'm shouting at the TV, and I'm extremely happy because at the end of the game, although the whistle hasn't blown yet, we're winning. And we're going to go into the final. And the final is going to be played in Ulster. This is just like a dream come true. But the whistle hadn't blown. And that other rascal team scored and won. So I went from ecstasy to just above deep depression. (laughs) And I was in a mood most of the morning. That's an embarrassment to me as I model for my boys. Extreme devotion for rugby and levels of disappointment disproportionate to what rugby is. I need to dial down my devotion for other stuff and dial up my devotion for the Lord Jesus Christ and standing with Him. And listen, many of you are more passionate about college football than you are about Jesus, and you know it. And I know I'm suddenly your most unpopular Scotch-Irish preacher at this point. (laughs) And when you get over that and when you extend some grace to me and forgive me, uh, I want you to think about that. Whether you're more devoted to, I don't know, Texas A&M or Baylor or TCU football than you are to Jesus Christ. You stand with him. Don't, Don't let your life get misaligned being devoted to stuff that's fun, but it's not comparable to him. Now that I'm in the spirit of offending people, let me continue. <laughs> Did you know that church attendance is down by about a third since we came out of COVID? There are many reasons why some people need to stay at home because of health and can join us online, and I think that's a remarkable option to serve them. But you know when you stay at home just to be at home. Well, a third of church attendance is down. And and there's many reasons why you should show up at a church like this regularly. Many reasons. Some of them because God wants you to. But I think one of the good reasons is because showing up in places like this on a Sunday across this nation makes a massive statement to this nation that Christians stand with Jesus. That that busy roads on a Sunday and full parking lots and busy restaurants and the police having to do extra work to to sort of manage the traffic makes a massive statement that in America, there are people who stand with Jesus visibly, physically. Some of you, I'm also aware, aren't with Jesus in the way I've just described, by faith. You've never received his forgiveness. You're, you're not a 
surely not, you're not a definitely not, but you're maybe more of a maybe not yet, perhaps one day type of a person. My words to you is that this is a decisive moment in your life. Do not reason away what Jesus' voice is saying to you. Do not rig it so that if the coin lands just standing up, then I will follow him and stand with him. That's, that's, that's not going to happen. Jesus says you're either with me by faith, recognizing that I am the Son of God who offers you life, or you're against me. There's no middle ground. You can be amazed all day long. Admiration for Jesus is not adoration for Jesus. That puts you on the wrong side of Jesus. Friend, if, if you do not know whether you're a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know that you are today by standing with him, and with him for you means that you just repent and believe. And come and talk to someone up front or email the church and request a visit with a pastor. It will help you. Let me close with another important event in the early days of this nation that I read as I was returning from Washington, D.C. in the same book. I thought it was quite amazing. It concerned uh, the Battle of Trenton in the Revolutionary War, and it was a decisive moment in the history of this nation. And I leave this with those of you who have never stood with Jesus through faith. The Continental Army was, was in a bad way, and, and George Washington, but was not going to give up. And he crossed the Delaware River at night, and it was cold. You all know the story. You've seen the paintings. You know your history. But did you know that the surprise attack uh, was, was known to the British? A British spy had contacted the colonel at Trenton Fortress to tell him an attack is coming. But the guy was too distracted. And the guy was too comfortable enjoying an evening of playing cards with his buddies that he didn't heed the message. He put it in his top pocket. And that's where it was found the next morning on his dead body on the battlefield. He ignored the warning. He ignored the message. He didn't heed it. The war took a different turn to your benefit, of course. Friend, do not ignore the message. Heed the message. This is a decisive moment in your life that can change the trajectory of your eternal destiny if you would just stand with Jesus. He wants to stand with you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks so clearly, that pierces into our souls, that divides even to the bone. Lord, I pray that your people in this room and in all the venues where this has been relayed to, and even those at home, that know you that they would make a commitment to stand with Jesus Christ in this generation. And that those who don't, who have never personally believed in your Son and received your forgiveness, that they would do so today. That they would just cry out where they're hearing me right now, I repent. I believe. Forgive me, for I am a sinner. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.